The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 24. That is page 1148, 1148 in the Pew Bible. Paul writes to the church in Corinth about marriage. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when he called you? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I'm going to invite Ursula up to bring us our sermon. Let's pray for Ursula. Thank you, Lord, for being with Ursula in her preparations. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what it is that uh, she has prepared to say to us. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. So, this week in Paul's pastoral letter to the Corinthian church, he moves from considering the temptations which enticed them to engage with immorality to considering the place of marriage and relationship in the lives of the believers. The Corinthian society had more in common with our present-day culture than we might think. 
Amongst the wealthier members, divorce and remarriage were common. There was considerable pressure for widowed and divorced and divorced people, particularly women, to remarry hastily. In contrast to these cultural pressures, there was also an insistence by some of the teachers influencing the church that only celibacy was an appropriate choice for the spiritually minded. Paul is pointing out here that as Christians, the believers are free to make a choice. There is much to be said for remaining single, he says, but there is much to commend the married life as well, particularly if a believer experiences a strong desire for intimacy. Be honest with yourselves, he's advocating, in the verses which precede ours today. You do not need to make choices based on social pressures or expectations. Abstinence or not, both are valid choices. Then comes the difficult question of inequality in a marriage, where one partner has come to faith in Christ, whilst the other lives in the darkness of pagan beliefs. Would the believing partner risk being tainted somehow by the pagan other? No, says Paul. In fact, it's the other way round. The Holy Spirit living within the believer will always lighten the darkness of pagan beliefs. And there was always the possibility that the unbelieving partners or children may come to faith through the witness of the Christian. But if the unbelieving partner wants to leave, let them go, says Paul. We don't need reminding that we live in a broken world, do we? In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, we read how God created male and female together in his image. There is something about that union and bond which reflects God's image into the world and back in worship to God himself, says Tom Wright in his study on Paul. But that image lies broken in our fallen world. The sanctity of marriage is challenged by adultery, by abuse, by sin, by images that are far removed from that that God intended. I don't think I'll ever forget meeting a young woman I knew some years ago. Although she was a deeply committed Christian, there were times when she was missing from church with no reason. One day I met her in town. She was trying to avoid me as she shopped for a few essentials. And even though she was covered in a scarf, I could see that her face was swollen, barely recognizable, disfigured by dark marks and cuts and bruises, her blackened eyes swollen and red from crying. Her story emerged. Her husband was beating her repeatedly. But if in the context of the church we were both members of at the time, she had been counseled to stay with him 
These verses from Paul had been used to lock her into an evil parody of a marriage where she feared for her life and her young son had witnessed unspeakable violence. I'm reminded that in last week's reading we looked at Paul's warning to the Corinthian church not to be bound by the legalism of their culture or backgrounds, but to live in the true freedom that only faith in Christ brings. In situations like the one I've just described, and many others that today's world of damaged relationships throw up, and whilst in no way questioning the integrity of Scripture, I believe we need to hear the depth of Paul's pastoral care that lie behind these verses, rather than be tempted to indulge in judgmental legalism. Paul shows us the way as he addresses the particular issues that face the Corinthian church with love and concern from a place of deep faith in Christ. And that's a model that we need to follow. And now we come to verses 17 to 24. And in the light of the previous verses, they seem somewhat out of place. The verses we've looked at so far continued the context of Paul's larger discourse on sexuality and marriage from the previous chapter. But as we heard last week how he used the illustration of stomach and food to focus the main thrust of his teaching on immoral behavior, here he uses a similar technique of making asides into the realms of circumcision and slavery to reinforce the points he was making. The Corinthian culture and the Christians who were part of it were experiencing pressures to conform, to be seen as Jewish and undergo circumcision, or conversely, to be Greek and have the marks of circumcision surgically removed. You're allowed to wince at that point. (laughs) There was no anaesthetic in those days. To be married or to remarry, another pressure, rather than remain single. Acceptance in this particular society was determined by conforming to its expectations. Added to this, they were living in a time of approaching famine as grain harvests were failing, the population of the city was growing, and there was an increasing gulf between the haves and the have-nots. It sounds familiar territory, doesn't it, for us today? But as we read in these verses about slavery, we need to remember that slavery was an accepted part of their society. And some have estimated that over a third of the adults in Corinth would have either been slaves or been enslaved. And here's a difference. In our society, modern slavery is an unacceptable situation although it is perhaps more commonplace than we would like to think, given the realities of poverty and migration and family breakdown, all of which can spawn the abuse of the vulnerable. But it's not this so-called modern form of slavery or the imperialistic form of it in our recent history to which Paul is referring here. 
These modern or imperialistic forms are abusive and sinful, which diminish the status of another and render them powerless. No, although there are many examples of the inhumane treatment of slaves in Paul's time, his worldview of slavery would have been very different to ours. So here Paul is using the examples of circumcision, his understanding of slavery and marriage to explore the concepts of identity and acceptance. It's almost inevitable, isn't it, that when we meet others, we apply preformed judgments. It's partly how we're wired when we make new relationships and friendships, or perhaps to avoid those whom we fear. I was thinking about this yesterday as I was driving up the Burway in Church Stretton to walk on Long Mind. Now, I only ever drive up the Burway because I like to cling to the rock on that side (laughs) and I don't look down. When I got to the top, there was a car with a couple of very elderly ladies in it who really looked quite doddery and they were about to drive down. And I wondered if they'd make it down to the bottom safely. I was applying a preformed judgment about the driving ability of the elderly lady that could or could not have been true. Sometimes this can be a helpful, healthy process. A thief, for instance, might decide that the life of an upright man he meets is something he wants to emulate. But what if our core belief about ourselves or others is that we or you are unacceptable as you are or as I am. I'm not okay unless. You're not okay unless. If I change, then I'm I'm acceptable. If you change, then I'll accept you. So if you're a Jewish man, asks Paul, Are you going to go through the pain of first century surgery to change your identity just to become acceptable to a certain group of people? If you're a slave, are you going to spend your waking hours planning your freedom? No, it's who you are in Christ that matters, not what man has labeled you as. If you're Jewish, then stay Jewish. If you're a slave, then be content to be a slave, says Paul. But he adds, it's not written in stone. If the opportunity to become a free man comes, then take it. Stay in the place God has placed you, but be open to him initiating change. But don't strive for it yourself. Don't make change the be-all and end-all of your existence. Continuing in the metaphor of slavery, Paul reminds us that we were bought at a price. We face many pressures to conform, both from our culture and, sadly, from within the church. We stereotype others in our search to make meaning of ourselves and others. We get drawn into the cultural rat race that determines that unless we're wealthier, unless we're wrinkle-free, unless we have a certain job, 
unless we dress in a certain way, unless we have a certain brand of trainer, we are not acceptable. Unless we worship in a certain way. Unless we conform to what? Some idea of perfection. We're not acceptable. Not so, says Paul. That God called us to faith, to become a member of Christ, is far more important than anything that man could ever lay on us. We need to resist the pressures to change that come from our culture or society. Our status comes from Christ and him alone. We are brought with a price. And as Paul tells us in Colossians, our lives are hidden in Christ with God. Thank God that the calling that each of us has on our lives does not depend on our social situation or how we perform according to some cultural value system. If it did, then we'd all be found wanting. Instead, as we focus on our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Instead of following the vagaries of cultural demands or the instincts of unbridled passions, we will put down good, solid roots. We will bear good fruit that bears witness to our heavenly calling. Amen.